In the last podcast, I reflected on love itself as a way of knowing, on love as crucial in the epistemological quest, the quest for knowledge. A third important way of knowing is what is known as the sensus divinitatis, where the two previous ways of knowing, tacit knowledge and love knowledge, along with reason and the scientific method, dealt with the path to knowledge in general, with with how we can know anything at all. The sensus divinitatis, as the word divinitatis itself indicates, has to do with knowledge about or of God. For centuries, Christians like St. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Dominican monk, teacher, spiritual guide, and one of the greatest philosophical minds in history, have spoken and written and witnessed to what is often referred to as the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. Actually, the idea of the sensus divinitatis as a formal argument goes back as far as Plato and perhaps even further than that. The sensus divinitatis, or sensus deitatis, sense of deity, is the realization of an individual that there exists within him or herself, within the human being, within human beings in general, a natural sense of the deity, an innate capacity to know God, to have experience a connection to God, an inborn awareness of some mysterious something more. The sensus divinitatis is understood by philosophers as a faculty somewhat, not exactly, but somewhat like our faculties of reason, our five senses, our powers of observation, our intuition, or our emotions, which all work, all work together to help us in the acquisition of knowledge. Although, like reason, the sensus divinitatis may be stronger in one person than in another. And like each of our other faculties, our sense of deity is not infallible, so that it has to be correlated with our faculties of other faculties of understanding. It also seems that, like our other faculties, to be completely natural to us as human beings. The Christian writer E. Stanley Jones asserted in his many books, and I think correctly so, that the desire for God, that our longing for something more to life, that our experiences of, of love and desire for love and beauty and our experiences of gratitude are manifestations of the divine, of the Spirit of God flowing in, round, and through us, that our awareness of the mysterious presence and nearness 
and grace of God is in our very tissue and in our very nerves. This has all become, I think, more literal than anyone could have ever imagined before modern studies in genetics. But more books are published all the time by geneticists and neuroscientists indicating that we are somehow hardwired for God, that spirituality is indeed in our tissue and in our very nerves. I think it is of the census divinitatis that Augustine, the last of the great classical scholars, spoke when he said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our our hearts are unquiet until they find their rest in you. Augustine knew firsthand what it was to hunger and thirst for the mysterious presence of God. And as a great Christian apologist, he would have thought it exceedingly strange if there was nothing in all of life or in reality capable of satisfying that desire. Somewhat like C.S. Lewis, observing how strange it would be if human beings experienced hunger, but there was nothing like food to satisfy that hunger or experience thirst, and there was nothing in existence like water to satisfy that thirst. Lewis was simply saying, in the 20th century, what Augustine said in the 4th, that it would seem strange for men and women to have this inner spiritual longing, and for there to be nothing and no one to satisfy it. Well, here are some specific and concrete examples of census divinitatis, of, of that experience. The first is taken from Admiral Byrd's diary while on his Antarctic expedition in 1934. Took my daily walk at 4 p.m. today in 89 degrees of frost. I paused to listen to the silence. The day was dying, the night being born, but with great peace. Here were imponderable processes and forces of the cosmos, harmonious and soundless. Harmony, that was it. It was enough to catch that rhythm momentarily, to be myself a part of it. In that instant, I could feel no doubt of humanity's oneness with the universe. The conviction came that the rhythm was too orderly, too harmonious, too perfect to be a product of blind chance, that therefore there must be a purpose in the whole, and that humanity was a part of that whole and not an accidental offshoot. It was a feeling that transcended reason that went to the heart of human despair and found it groundless. Here is one from Gerald May's Will and Spirit, a Contemplative Psychology. It is the experience of a corporate lawyer while on vacation, who only after this 
experience begin to acknowledge a, a spiritual dimension to his life. I was on vacation in the mountains. Two friends and I had hiked most of the morning and we were very tired. I lay down by a tree stump and slept. When I awoke, it was late afternoon and everything had become quiet. The crickets and the cicadas had silenced their chirping. And even the breeze stopped. All I can say is that moment was an eternity. And it was the moment of my birth. I was 45 years old, but in those few minutes I was born. I had no thought at the time. Everything was just there. I had no reaction except for a deep quiet and peace. This is hard for me to say, but at some point I remember thinking, there is a God. There is a God. Somewhere deep down, something had changed. Now I look for God. I seek the wonder of life. And while I appreciate being here on the face of this earth more than ever, I also fear death less. I sit alone sometimes, and now and then I enter that moment again. Here is one, an example, related more directly to the Christian faith. I was uh, conducting a retreat for a vestry, the council board of directors for a local Episcopal church, at a Catholic retreat center in the Sequoia and Kings National Forest. I asked the group, when, if ever, did God become more than just a word for you? One of the women, the senior warden or uh, chairperson, answered uh, like this, as, as best as I can remember what she said. I should preface my story, she said, by telling you that my experience is not of the Trinity in general, or even of the Father or the Holy Spirit. It is my experience of Jesus specifically. And although I was only a child, it has remained the crucial, determinative experience of my whole life. I should also tell you that I was abandoned by my mother and left in the care of an aunt who was cold and indifferent. I was never praised for anything, and no one ever said to me, I love you. One very cold and gloomy day, although for me most days were cold and gloomy, whether the sun was shining or not, my aunt and I were walking down a street when we passed a church. Outside, in front of the church, was a large statue. Now, no one ever told me about church. No one had ever talked about Jesus or faith or hope or grace. So I don't know how I knew that the statue was meant to represent Jesus, but I did. He was standing with one hand slightly reaching out, reaching out, it seemed to me. I paused for just a couple of seconds there on the sidewalk, and in my imagination, I put my hand in his, and he walked on down the sidewalk with me. That's how I got through my childhood. That's how I've come to have a happy life. He is always and everywhere with me, letting me know I am loved.
And finally, here is a personal experience related by William Berry, the Jesuit priest, spiritual director, and uh, author. I think it because of it because of the of its utter simplicity. There's nothing dramatic about it, but it demonstrates, I think, the the sensus divinitatis in everyday ordinary life. Barry writes this. I was walking by the seashore on a lovely, clear, crisp autumn day. I admired the sun on the leaves and on the blue water. Suddenly there welled up in me a feeling of great well-being and a strong desire for, I know not what, for the all, for union. That made me very happy. I remembered a few other times of such joy and desire and realized why autumn is my favorite season, because it is associated with such experiences. As almost as quickly as it came, it was gone. I was happy afterward, not downcast, even though I no longer had the experience. I would like to have the experience again, though I am not bereft without it. Experiences of the senses divinitatis, then, are many and varied, many so subtle and ordinary that they go completely unnoticed, and nevertheless, uh, they're rare. Uh, there, there is rare and beautiful wisdom contained in them all. Now, I hasten to add that the census divinitatis is neither definitive proof that the reality we call God exists, nor is it an infallible means of epistemology, of knowing. It is simply one of several means by which we may come to know the reality, the mystery of God. However, with the census divinitatis, as well as with other ways of knowing, like tacit knowledge or Martin Buber's I-Thou epistemology or love knowledge, I find myself with something I cannot get around by simply assigning it to purely psychological, anthropological, um, sociological, or neurological processes. My guess, although this is entirely speculation on my part, my guess is that eons ago, our species developed or was gifted with a consciousness capable of divine communion. Incredible depths of spiritual pleasure, joy, and fulfillment were opened wide. I think that as Paleolithic men and women experienced beauty and awe and wonder and a sense of mystery, Perhaps as they sat around a campfire at night, gazing into its burning embers, each a shining galaxy of meaning, they knew the numinous, knew what Rudolf Otto called the Mysterium Tremendum, 
And what Freud said he understood as the oceanic feeling, although he had never experienced it himself. I think that from the Stone Age until here now in the 20th in the 21st century, there are men and women who have felt the sensus definitatus, have experienced it not as a philosophical notion, but as a living, although inexplicable, reality. What I notice more and more is that all deeper ways of knowing have something in common. They are not ways of figuring something out intellectually, but of seeing something. A Christian believer, it seems to me, is someone who, in his or her experience of life, uh, who, in his or her experience of existence in this world, sees a significance, a deeper meaning to things to which the natural response is gratitude and wonder and a desire to be a part of this beauty, this truth, this mysterious something more, a desire to be in tune with it. Now, this is not a reason and conclusion to which one comes as is solving a mathematical problem on a whiteboard, but rather something that is perceived, recognized, or realized like all experiences, events, observations, and facts, the meaning of such occurrences must be interpreted, and the interpretation made by Christians in light of reason and tradition and experience and scripture is that they are encounters with the numinous, encounters with the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the next episode, I want to consider a fourth way of knowing. But for now, I close with a quote from Charles Chestnut's God and Spirituality Philosophical Essays. Chestnut writes this, People who have never seriously tried to live the spiritual life sometimes claim that those who do talk about the spiritual life must be talking nonsense, because they themselves cannot see or feel anything. But just as in the case of wine connoisseurs and skilled musicians, we can demonstrate that experts in the spiritual life possess a kind of experiential knowledge which can be tested empirically and pragmatically.